Welcome to the Tuesday Night Bible Study. We're here to study the book of Matthew, chapter 11. So turning your Bibles to Matthew 11. Um, we have come through a whole series of uh, chapters where Matthew is proving to us that Jesus really is the promised Messiah by his, um, by his genealogy, being in, from the line of David on both sides, Mary and Joseph, from the fact that his father is God himself, from the fact that God the Father spoke at his baptism. Imagine that, uh, claiming him to be his beloved son. We've seen the forerunner, John the Baptist. He's going to come back again in this chapter. We've seen two, uh, three chapters of incredible wisdom in the Sermon on the Mount. We've seen an incredible uh uh, let's see, eight, nine, ten, uh, three chapters of incredible miracles showing Jesus has power and authority over sickness, over death, over demons, over leprosy, which is a sickness, over nature itself. He can calm storms. And further on in this book, we'll find out that he can multiply a few loaves and a few fish and feed tens of a couple tens of thousands of people. So anyway, we're in chapter 11 right now, and so I know that you're awake. Say amen. Amen. Good one. Um, so Jesus finishes the teaching. Look at verse 2 of chapter 11, just by way of review. We're going to really pick it up around verse 9, but I wanted to give you just the background. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come? That's a saying, uh, uh, one of the titles for the Messiah. Are you the one who was to come or should we expect somebody else? John's in prison. He's maybe having some doubts. And he preached in chapter 3 of Matthew that the Messiah, Jesus, would come and would, with great judgment and fire, which the Messiah is supposed to do. Jesus will do that at the second coming. But John is not uh, receiving Jesus's behavior as being messianic or messiah-like because he's not gotten John out of prison. I have a feeling John got into, uh, it was sent to prison and figured Jesus is going to throw off all these Romans and all these pagan leaders that we have. I'll be out of here in no time. And he's still there. And Jesus is doing a lot of healing and preaching, but there hasn't been any judgment yet. So as you know, there's two sets of scriptures in the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, that speak of the Messiah. One set is that he comes in judgment to reward good and punish evil. That's the second coming of the Messiah. But the first coming, he comes to suffer for the sins of the world. He heals the sick, he raises the dead. And so John's got some questions. Jesus replied, verse 4, go back and report to John what you hear and see. He sent a few of his disciples to ask this. And Luke tells us that what he's about to describe in verse 5, he does these things right then and there. Again, tell him what you see. Verse 5, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. In other words, tremendous miracles. He, we talked about it last week. Uh, Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would heal the sick and raise the dead, and the deaf would be able to hear. 
And especially Jesus is focusing on the poor, uh, also predicted. Blessed is the man who does not fall away or stumble over, verse 6, me, on account of me. Verse 7, as John's disciples were leaving, they have their answer. They're going to go tell John. He starts to talk about John the Baptist, because there must have been people there like I was when I first read this chapter, thinking, hmm, John's got doubts. Hmm, maybe he's not the prophet we thought he was. As John's disciples, verse 7, were leaving, the, Jesus began to teach the crowd about John. What did you go out in the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind. They were, these were like reed grass that would just sway in the wind, meaning something very weak that's easily um, controlled. He's saying that, uh, you know, sort of facetiously. It's the opposite of what he was. If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Verse 9, well then, what did you go out to see? We covered this last week. A prophet? See, he's going to finally answer. Is John the Baptist a prophet? Yes, that's from Jesus' mouth, God himself in human flesh. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. Uh, this is verse 10. Behold, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. That verse, by the way, is from Malachi, and it's God the Father talking to the Son. I, God the Father, will send my, God the Father's, messenger ahead of you, Jesus, the Messiah, who will prepare your way, Jesus, before you, Jesus. Kind of interesting. Um, so John the Baptist is the last prophet of the Old Testament era. Even though he's in the New Testament, He's still part of the Jewish prophets. His message is simple. Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, therefore. Make straight your paths, all of that. Now comes an astounding thing. Uh, so they did go to see him because he's a prophet, uh, in ver starting back in verse 9. He's an unusual prophet in, in that he's the only prophet who is a fulfillment of prophecy himself. The, the forerunner of the Messiah. Kind of interesting. Uh, that's Malachi 3.1, by the way. Um, I'm going to skip that for now. Um, but Jesus affirms that he, John, is a prophet. We're going to find out that Jesus is about to say that up till that time in human history, John the Baptist is the greatest human being who ever lived. Verse 11. I tell you the truth, among those born of women... That would be everybody except Adam and Eve, right? They weren't born of a woman, the traditional way. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, he means human beings, so he does include Matt, uh, Adam and Eve. There has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's pretty astounding. Greater than Moses, Abraham, David, Elijah. You could go down the list. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Did you catch that? The kingdom of heaven is all those who are Christians. If there's a kingdom, there's a king. The king is Jesus. He's ruling in our hearts. One day he will rule the world and the universe in a real sense after he returns. That verse is saying John the Baptist is the greatest that there was, and yet whoever is the least, may I say it this way, the worst Christian 
in the world. Imagine having that title. Somewhere, maybe it's me for that matter, somewhere there's someone who is a Christian just barely, right? He's the worst. He's the least in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, same thing. He who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. How could that be? We just touched on this verse last week. That's why I wanted to go back a little and go over it again. John anticipated and announced the kingdom of heaven and the Messiah. He did not get to experience it. He dies before the cross, does not get to see, as far as we know, the miracles or hear the teaching, except secondhand. He dies before Jesus rises from the dead. And since the since Pentecost, Christians, when they receive Jesus, have the Holy Spirit living inside of them permanently. John the Baptist definitely was led by the Spirit of God, but he did not have it in the full sense you and I do. He did not have the full forgiveness of sins. Are you saying he's going to hell, Joe? No, not at all. He looked forward to the coming of the Messiah like all the other Old Testament saints and believers. We look back to the coming of the Messiah 2,000 years ago. But John the Baptist did not understand the gospel. He announced it. We get to experience it, experience Christ in a full-orbed sense. Uh, so we have a higher position than even the greatest Old Testament prophet. It's an astounding thing. Um, let's see. Yeah, he didn't enjoy the full benefits, like we said. So in heaven, um, I'm sure he was told, here's what really is going to happen. Jesus is going to die for the sins of the world. He does say in the Gospel of John, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Obviously, the Spirit revealed that to him. I don't know that he fully understood it because here he is questioning, are you the guy or not? Some rabbis, remember I told you there's two sets of scriptures in the Old Testament about the Messiah. One teaches a guy that will be a suffering servant, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. The other side is a conquering king who punishes evil, rewards good, and reigns forever. There were a few rabbis who taught that there might be two messiahs, the first guy, the suffering guy, and then the conquering king guy. Turns out it's the same guy both times. Makes more sense that way, by the way. Okay, we already talked about that. Verse 12 is one of maybe a dozen verses in the whole Bible that are really hard to explain and even to translate. I just want to warn you. So I'm going to do my best. From the days of John the Baptist until now, he doesn't mean now 2023, he means when he's talking, okay? Since John started his ministry, which might be a year ago from when he's saying this, from the days of, there it is, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. That's NIV. Let me read you a few other uh, translations. New American Standard. The kingdom has been treated violently and violent men take it by force. Uh, NIV, as I said, subject to violence. So suffered violence kind of thing. So What's going on here? You can't divorce this scripture from the context of what he was just 
talking about? He's talking about John the Baptist, okay? Who's in prison, who's about to be beheaded, maybe in the months ahead. Okay, so there are a couple different views on this scripture, but most scholars are agreed on this. Um, let's see. The kingdom of heaven coming is so, um, is so in a sense, uh, catastrophic, not in a bad way. It sounds, that's a bad word maybe, but it is violent in the way that it comes. Here's my analogy that may help. I go to, I'll make it me so it isn't you. I go to the doctor and they were going to do some tests. You got something wrong here or somewhere here. And they do tests and they do x-rays and a PET scan or whatever. And then they say, well, we have to do surgery. That's violent. You say, well, it's not really violent. They're not hitting you. They're cutting you open. They're stabbing you with needles to knock you out. They're going to cut you open. Open heart surgery, they saw you in half right here and open your chest. I'm getting chest pains thinking about it. And they move things around and take things out and put it back together and sew it up. And there's a violence to it. And yet it's totally good, right? A fool would say, no, don't do it. It's too violent. So um, there's two senses here about this verse. First, from the days of John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been taking it by force. That's the way Luke words it or rating it. So he's saying that the kingdom of heaven is such a radical change for planet earth that there are upheavals everywhere. People have been walking around as the king or queen of their own life, I call the shots. Not knowing that Satan really is controlling all unbelievers. John 8 talks about that. You are of your father, the devil, he says to the Pharisees. There's an upheaval in that situation. There's an upheaval in terms of the fact that the coming of the kingdom does not come with the birth of Jesus much as we like to celebrate Christmas. It doesn't come with the miracles or the preaching of Jesus. It doesn't come with his wisdom that he's speaking or controlling the sea and the waves. The kingdom of heaven comes with violence. They arrest, beat up, whip, and nail to a cross the Son of God. That is not a gentle sort of coming in. He's saying the kingdom that's the way it comes. The earth is in the curse of sin, so messed up. Radical surgery, remember the surgery we talked about, has to be done in order to right what's wrong. To reverse the curse, someone's got to die. And indirectly, he's explaining, and it might even be John the Baptist, because notice he mentions John the Baptist, who's in prison. That's why he's there. The world is going to fight back against the gospel with their own violence. We'll arrest John the Baptist. We'll arrest Jesus. We'll arrest some of the apostles in the book of Acts. 11 of the 12 apostles die martyrs' deaths because they believe. So um, death itself is even upended. Tim Keller in his sermon on this passage says, if you're coming to church and you didn't used to go, and now you're sort of coming back or coming for the first time, and you think, you know, 
I got a pretty full life. I'd like to add a little something, a little Jesus, a little, get a little religion. He says, forget it. That's not what this is. It's, it's a radical change. God wants to totally revolutionize your life and mine. Christianity is not a little something you add. It becomes the foundation, the basis, the number one priority in your life. Remember what he said, Jesus said last week, if you love your parents more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love anything ahead of Jesus, you're not worthy of me. So uh, it's not like adding, I mean, having a burger. Would you like to add fries with that? It's a little side dish, or would you like a little relish on the burger or some onions? It's not that. It's a revolutionary way of bringing God into your life. God doesn't want to be a little something you add. It comes in with a bang, with some violence. God's going to break walls. When Jesus dies on the cross, the, the curtain that separated the Jews from the Holy of Holies where God dwelt and the Ark of the Covenant was, God rips that as a way of saying the kingdom does not come in with a whisper. It comes in violently almost, but in a good way, like a surgery kind of a thing. Um, great opposition to the kingdom. And those who desire to, let's look at the verse again, 12. The kingdom of heaven's been subjected to or advancing with violence, and violent people have been raiding it. He's saying, unless you are willing to charge ahead with Jesus, in, especially in that culture, you're going to find yourself wimping out and just being quiet. Earlier he said, do you remember? It was the last chapter. If you do not, if men do not confess me before other men, I won't confess them before my father. Remember that? So there is a sort of a violence. I know that's a tough word. Um, in John 6, they tried to make him king of Israel by force. John 6, 15. Um, let's see. Uh, but the, and the end result is a marvelous thing, but there is great um, uh, upheavals that go on everywhere as a result. In a personal life, God, Jesus asks us, it was in the last chapter, do you remember? That a believer is supposed to take up his, what? Cross, right, and follow me. Cross instrument of death. The person that took up the cross was the one about to die. That's how much of an upheaval, how much of a violence Christianity really is. It is not a philosophy. We're going to find out it's about a person who died for us, and as a result, we are supposed to be dying our old self for him. So um, he's also mentioning this, and I'm going to add these words, and I think it's accurate. The kingdom of heaven is advancing violently and violent men take it by force. Here's my addition. Even though it doesn't look like it yet. It's a tiny little thing. Israel's the size of New Jersey. It's just kind of a local little thing going on right now. It's going to explode all over the world. It becomes the biggest religion in the world. Um, so because it, involve, it involves that kind of change, no wonder. John's in prison. No wonder he's going to get beheaded. He's just a little ahead of Jesus, who's going to get killed, not beheaded, but killed on a cross. Um, 
to keep your finger here and go to Luke chapter 16. So that's two books, <clears throat> excuse me, to the right. Luke 16. And oddly enough, we want verse 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. Isn't that interesting? Um, and then he talks about a stroke of a pen and all that, but that's not doesn't relate, so we'll keep moving. Um, every man presses into it. It's successful despite how it looks, and the ones that God draws, they press into it. I don't know if you're like me. Some people make a decision for Christ, and that's it. Me, I... I believed as a Catholic growing up, Jesus died on the cross, the Bible, it's true, God, there's really a God, you know, virgin birth. I would have, if you had asked me, I would have said, I don't disagree with any of that, but I wasn't living it. But I remember in the late 70s, God really started pulling on my shirt. Come here, you know what you're doing is wrong, all that. And I fought it and I really was on the fence longer probably than most people, I'm embarrassed to say. Um, but the time comes when God pulls you almost and you go willingly, so to speak. So an era ended with John's preaching. From then on, the new prophets are Jesus, the 12 apostles, and people like Barnabas, Apollos in the book of Acts, etc. And eventually after that, every single pastor or Christian that has spread the word. In a sense, you are a prophet, small p, in that you tell other people, and so do I. We're not predicting the future, uh, but we are telling people about the gospel. Okay, let's keep reading. Uh, let's see. <laughs> 4, verse 13. All the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So the, the law and the prophets, he reverses the order here, is the way the Jews referred to the Jewish Bible, the, what we call the Old Testament, the Torah, the law, first five books of the Bible, and the prophets. He says that all of that, um, lost my place, um, prophesied until John. This is a new era. This is a new testament that's about to come. Verse 14 is a little tough. And if you're willing to accept it, he, John the Baptist, is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, ears to hear, let them hear. You say, he's Elijah? Listen, in the book of John, uh, well, first, yeah, let's, let's look at a few scriptures. Keep your finger in, uh, in uh, Matthew, but go to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, right after Mark. Let's go to verse 17. <clears throat> this, this is an angel, starting in verse 13, talking to Zechariah, who's going to be the father of John the Baptist, Okay. Your wife will bear you a son, in verse 13. Uh, give him the name John. He'll be a joy and a delight to you. Many will rejoice because of his birth. Be great in the sight of the Lord. 
He's never going to take wine or other fermented drink filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. He takes a Nazarite vow where they grew their hair very long, early hippies 2,000 years ago. Just kidding. He ate locusts and honey. He wore very rough clothing, very similar to Elijah. Okay, keep reading. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice that even from birth. Many of the people of Israel he will he bring back to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord, that's Jesus. He's a forerunner in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Do you see that? To turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. His message, repent, Jesus is coming. Jesus shows up, his job is basically over. He gets arrested, eventually uh, beheaded. So, um, let's see, now go to Matthew 17. Well, no, we don't need to go there. Matthew 17 is the transfiguration. Remember, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a high mountain, just the three, the four of them, and he's transfigured. He's glowing, and Elijah and Moses are there, representing Elijah, the prophets, Moses, the law. Do you remember? And God's... uh, and Peter speaks out of turn and says, oh, I get it. I'm paraphrasing. Let's build three tabernacles, one for you, Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I get it. You're on an equal footing with Moses and Elijah. That's incredible. And then there's a big cloud of smoke. You can't see anything. They're very afraid. They fall to the ground. And God says, wrong. No, just kidding. God says, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him, meaning listen to him. Smoke clears, no Elijah, no Moses, only Jesus. Okay, you say, wait, why is Elijah there? He represents the prophets. He's the greatest of the prophets. Elijah is one of two people in the Old Testament who have a weird thing happen. The other one's Enoch. Anybody know what it is? He doesn't die. Enoch is a Gentile, comes before Abraham, book of Genesis, and Enoch walked with God. And then he was not, Genesis says, for God took him. No explanation. He just took him alive into heaven. The other guy that this happens to is Elijah. Elijah, by the way, John the Baptist is depressed. A little. He's in prison. You know, what's going on? Losing faith, maybe a little doubting. Elijah ends up in the same predicament. Not in prison, but he's doubting, feeling sorry for himself. He tells God, I'm the only one left. But Elijah is told by God, you're supposed to hand your thing, your ministry, off to somebody else, which is Elisha. John the Baptist is sort of holding, is supposed to hand off his ministry to Jesus. uh, Elijah is walking with Elisha in the Old Testament. And it just says, again, without explanation, a chariot of fire with horses of fire swoops in, takes Elijah, and Elisha goes, wow, there he goes. And he goes to heaven alive. Again, no explanation. Don't ask me, but he took him home. So 
The Jews understood before Messiah, Elijah would return before the great and terrible day of the Lord. That's an interesting phrase because it's great when Jesus comes. It's terrible when he comes a second time, if you're not a believer. In the last days in Revelation chapter 11, there are two witnesses. Turn there briefly with me. It's an easy book to find. It's right at the end. Revelation, right before the book of Concordance. No, I'm just kidding. Revelation chapter 11, the two witnesses. Uh, pick it up in verse 3. I'll give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days. That's three and a half years, part of the tribulation. Clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees. Okay, most scholars think that means they're Jewish, which would exclude, because some people think, oh, it's Enoch and Elijah, the two people that didn't die. But the olive tree is one of the images, one of the symbolic ways God refers to Israel. The other one is the fig tree. Occasionally it's the vineyard. Okay, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Anyone tries to harm them, listen to this, verse 5. These guys are going to preach in Jerusalem about Jesus. And if anyone, verse 5, tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have the power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they're prophesying. You know who did that in the Old Testament? Elijah. Uh, to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. You know who did that in the Old Testament? Moses. Some people have asked, wait a minute, Enoch didn't die. I get that, he went to heaven. Elijah didn't die. That's why he's back here in Revelation 11. Most scholars think this is really Moses and really Elijah. Some say no, just like John the Baptist, it's somebody coming in the spirit and the power of those two dudes. But what about Moses? Didn't he die? Yes, he dies, Old Testament. Interestingly, there's two weird scriptures about his death or what happens afterwards. The first one is, when he dies, guess who buries the body of Moses? God himself. It's astounding to me. Digging the hole and, you know, maybe he just said, let there be hole and there was hole, you know. But anyway, he, put, he buries Moses and we don't know where the grave is, I think. If Joshua or somebody else buried Moses, there'd be a huge monument and a plaque. People be with selling postcards now. And, you know, this is part of Moses' original robe that he wore, 1995. Give me a break. You know, my pillow, this is my robe you could order. Anyway, we don't know where he is. The other weird scripture is in Jude, where Michael the angel has a kind of an argument, almost a fight with the devil about the body of Moses, which, because of the curse of sin, every body that dies decays. And God says, not this one. I got plans for him. Mount of Transfiguration shows up again. Revelation 11 shows up again. What happens to them, we're not here to study Revelation, thank God. What happens to them, it's the hardest book to teach. What happens to them is they preach for three and a half years. And when God's says, okay, good job. They are killed. And look at verse 7. I'm still in Revelation 11. When they finish their testimony, the beast, that's the Antichrist, that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower them and kill them because it's their time. Until then, they had absolute 
immunity to death. Their bodies will lie on the street of the great city, which is figured to be called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Now you know, where is it? Jerusalem. The Antichrist is so thrilled to finally shut these two Christian Jewish guys up that he not only kills them, he he's orders, leave the bodies there, let CNN and MSNBC and Fox News film it again, boys. They're dead now. See? But just like their Lord, verse 9, for three and a half days, everybody sees him. Uh, they even give themselves gifts. But look at verse 11. After three and a half days, the breath, a breath of life from God entered them. They stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. They're raised from the dead. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. Is that awesome or what? So it's a witness. It ends up being a witness. Um, okay, now uh, the book of John, Gospel of John, three books right of Matthew. John chapter 1. We won't be here long. I want you to know about Elijah and about John the Baptist. What's the connection? John chapter 1, and we're going to pick it up in verse, uh, let's see, <laughs> 21. John 1, 21. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you that prophet? That's how it reads in Greek. That prophet means in Deuteronomy, Moses said, there's going to be another prophet like me. The Jews were waiting for that. Turns out, you know who that was? Christ. Um, uh, are you that prophet? No. Finally, they said, well, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied, verse 23, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I'm the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord, for someone else. Why do you baptize if you're not the Christ, not Elijah, not the prophet? I baptize with water, 26, but among you stands one you don't know. He's the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandal I'm not worried to, un, uh, to untie. So John knows, look at verse 29, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the one I meant. But in prison, when tough times come, we tend to look up and go, where are you? Some people have the mistaken idea that when you become a Christian, you don't have any problems from now on. Nothing could be further from the truth. You might have more problems, but greater peace. And you have eternal life, and the benefits far outweigh the bummers, if you will. John, uh, John the Baptist comes in the spirit and the power of, but he's not, Elijah. Uh, yeah, we already talked about that and that. Okay. So, uh, as important as Moses and Elijah are, they are nothing compared to Jesus Christ. The reason God gave the law, the Ten Commandments and all that, was to show the Jews and the rest of the world, this is what God wants, the behavior he wants, and you and I can't do it. It has to be a sacrifice for sin over and over and over. You need a Savior, so do I, sort of thing. So, back to... Matthew chapter 11. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay. Uh, those of you on Zoom, are you awake? I haven't asked you yet. Okay. Um, okay. 
He was Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. That's a proverbial saying that Jesus uses to say, listen up, this is really, really important. Verse 16, to what can I compare this generation? He means the generation living at that time, the Jewish people who, to give you context, for the most part, do not believe Jesus is the Messiah. Wait, isn't he drawing huge crowds? He is. Coming for a healing, coming to see him multiply loaves and fish, do another trick, David Copperfield, Jesus. But when it comes to actually giving their lives to him, most Jews say, no thanks, we will not have this man rule over us. Okay, that's the context. Now, to what shall I compare this generation, in other words, who rejected Christ? Like I said, Matthew gives you 10 chapters of proof. This is the guy. Chapter 11 is the start of, 11 and 12 especially, the response. Jews, Israel, it's time to make a decision. Got all the evidence in the world. And basically the answer is no thanks. That's why he's, what did you say, Ken? Why? Because he's not the Messiah they're expecting. He, they're expecting the king that's going to throw off the yoke of Rome and take over the world and reward the Jews. And he's not doing that. He's healing the sick and raising the dead. He's not leading a revolution. He's not doing what they expected. And he's going to explain that in verse 16 uh, and 17 and 18. To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces, calling out to the others, to others. We played the pipe for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't mourn. Okay, what's going on here? Kids would play games, much like we did when we were kids, imitating parents. I don't know about you, but we, when we first moved to San Jose, um, there were girls that lived a couple houses down from the house we were living in, and they wanted to play house. I didn't want to play house, but they wouldn't play football or baseball unless we played house. So we played how you be the husband. Oh, great. You know, <laughs> wonderful. Okay. So they, imi you imitate parents, right? The Jewish children would imitate two milestone things that happened in Jewish life. One was a wedding where they would play um, the pipe, which means a flute which is a happy thing. And you're supposed to dance because it's a wedding. The kids are doing this and the other kids are going, eh. I want you to notice it's not really this as much as it's absolute eh, indifference. That's one of the reactions. You'll see this in a bigger way when you see the Pharisees who think he's Satan himself. We got to kill this guy. Most Jews just think, eh. Okay, so we played the pipe for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge. A dirge is a sad song that would drone on and on at a funeral. And you didn't mourn. Let's play funeral. And they're not willing to play along. You say, I have no idea what Jesus is talking about. Me either. Let's skip this whole section. No, I'm just kidding. The point is, they're fickle. They want a Burger King Messiah. You know what that is? Have it your way. We want the Messiah to do the following things. And he's not playing along. And so 
Um, so now he's going to give you the, and he's going to put in John the Baptist as well, because Jesus is the same way. And the funeral is John the Baptist. And the wedding is Jesus. You say, where do you get that? Watch. 4, verse 18 for John, that's John the Baptist, came neither eating nor drinking. He's fasting a lot. His disciples fast. He eats locusts and honey. He's roughing it out there in the wilderness. Right? Saying, repent. You should be mourning over your sin like you're at a funeral, you Jews. Right? He's pretty much bad news, except for the Messiah, the kingdom of heaven is here. You better repent or else. Son of man, uh, sorry, John came neither eating or drinking, and they say he has a demon. That doesn't fit into what we're expecting. We want have it your way religion. The son of man, that's Jesus, verse 19, Jesus' title for himself. The son of man came eating and drinking. Opposite, John the Baptist wasn't doing that. John, Jesus and his disciples don't fast. That came up last chapter. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, He's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of sinners, tax collectors and sinners. Not what we wanted, not what we expected. The thing is, if you and I come to Jesus Christ with our preconceived notions of what Christianity is going to be like, apart from this book, the Bible, you're in trouble. I have a friend that came to Jesus Christ and his financial problems did not immediately go away. And he told me, this is in the 80s, I tried the Jesus thing, quote, it didn't work. I, I sang, I played a flute for you and you, come on, dance, Jesus. Isn't he the spiritual bellhop that you ring the bell and you tell him what you want and he, you get what you want? No. If anything, he's the one giving the orders, and I'm the bellhop going, what do you want me to do? It's just the opposite. Our preconceived notions about Jesus might be wrong. Well, how do we correct that? The more you know this word of God, the less you'll be surprised. Okay, so this generation, he's saying, verse 16, 17, 18, they're so fickle. They're not getting the Messiah they want. They're not getting John the Baptist they want. They want to call the shots. They want to force prophets into their own preconceived mold. Isn't it interesting? Paul says in the books to Timothy, twice I believe, that in the last days, people, fickle humanity, will finally get what they want. They'll assemble for themselves teachers, preachers, mega pastors, the guy that blinks a lot in Houston, you know who I'm talking about, who will tell them, listen, what their itching ears want to hear. Have it your way. Joel Osteen talks about, you can have, listen to this, come to Jesus, you can have your best life now. That's the name of his book. I don't want my best life now. My best life is ahead of me with the Lord. I come to Jesus for salvation. It is a great life, but I might get persecuted and hated or ridiculed because I'm a Jesus freak, right? So uh, they eventually, men, 
figure out how to get preachers who tell them what they want to hear. And may I say, preachers are smart. Churches, unfortunately, not all, not this one, but a lot of churches are about numbers. They got 800 people over there, two services. They have 3,500 people over there. And Joel Osteen has the largest church in America. He bought the stadium, indoor stadium, that the Houston Rockets basketball team used to play in. Largest church in America. You know why? Telling people what they want to hear, not the truth. Okay. Did I mention his name? Sorry. Um, but, yeah. Mr. Osteen, whoever that may be. May I say, in a sense, listen, the gospel is actually a funeral and a wedding, isn't it? Whose funeral? What are you talking about? Jesus. But he rises from the dead. It's also your funeral and mine. The old me is supposed to be dying daily in favor of the new me. Oh, it's a funeral. It's just a big bummer. No, it's also a wedding. You know, Jesus is engaged, right? To you. You're the bride of Christ. He's the bridegroom coming back for his bride at the second coming. So it is in a sense, isn't it? A funeral and a wedding. But all for man's betterment, if you will. Um, notice that they, the complaint they make about Jesus is that he, uh, verse 19 he came eating and drinking. By the way, are those sins? Last time I checked, they're not, right? But there's, if, if you have the binoculars of criticism, you will find stuff to criticize among us, about me, about your pastor, about your whoever, wife, husband, kids. They have those eyes of criticism. John the Baptist, no, he has a demon. He, he's fasting all the time. Jesus isn't fasting. Yeah, we don't like that either. See what I mean? They're like the spoiled little kids that want it their way. Um, son of man, verse 19, came eating and drinking. They say, here's a glutton and a, and a drunkard. Did he drink wine? Yes. Mormons say no. It was grape juice. The wedding in Cana, chapter 2 of John, he changes the water into, wait for it, Welch's grape juice. Give me a break. And the steward says, most people save the best grape juice. Uh, they don't save the, they, they usually serve the good stuff early. You saved the best grape juice till now. Give me a break. Okay. Anyway, they call him a glutton and a drunkard. I believe Jesus drank wine. I also will tell you, I don't believe Jesus ever got drunk because getting drunk is a sin. I've been drunk. Maybe you've been drunk. Jesus never got drunk. How do you know? Because he never sinned. Okay. Um, but here's a, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's a badge of honor for Jesus. He says, that's absolutely who I'm here to save. The people that know they're sinners, that need a, know they need a savior. I'm here for the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the ones that know I'm spiritually bankrupt. I need a savior. Okay, last sentence, and then we'll take our two-minute break. There's apples back there have four or five and uh, in our two minute break. Okay, but wisdom is proved right or vindicated by her deeds. Luke has, Luke has wisdom is vindicated by her children. 
What does that mean? By the way, Old Testament, very often when you see the word wisdom, it's a personification of God himself. He's saying, you think John the Baptist was a fool doing what he did. You think that I'm evil, but what we're doing, our wisdom will be shown to be true if we found not guilty, vindicated by the fruit, the deeds, the offspring, if you will, the children. What do you mean children? I mean, what's the result of John the Baptist's ministry? Tens of thousands of people heard him and repented. What's the result of Jesus's ministry? People got born again. He rose from the dead. Christianity has been a blessing on the whole planet. It's the largest religion in the world. Uh, D. James Kennedy wrote a book. I can't think of the name of it, but it's about, I think it's something, the premise is, what if there was no Jesus? Wouldn't the world just kind of be the same? And he goes into the fact that most colleges, do you know this? Started out as Christian organizations, including, by the way, the most liberal ones like Yale and Harvard and stuff like that. Most hospitals were started by Christians, orphanages, Christians. How many atheist orphanages do you know about? Let's take our two-minute break right now and go eat some snacks. Those of you on Zoom, don't go away. We'll be back in two minutes. Thank you. Welcome back to the Tuesday night Bible study. Find your seats back there and don't throw those apples in my direction, please. Okay. So, as I said, this chapter is where the Jews have to make a decision and they're making a decision. Some people are just indifferent to the gospel. Some people are outright, outright hostile to the gospel. But I want you to notice something. Okay. Starting in verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed, performed because they did not repent. What's repent? Repent is making a U-turn on the road of life. You're heading this way sinfully and you stop. God makes you aware of the fact that where you're going is the wrong way to go, and you turn, make a U-turn, and go toward God, toward Christ, repent. I want to stop doing these sins. Jesus does all the miracles. Remember, they're not miracles just for miracles' sake. They're all signs that point to something else, his power, his deity, his grace, and what have you. So um, the word denounce means to reprimand, almost like... Uh, he, he's, you know, really scolding these towns. Why is he picking these towns? They're all in Galilee, and they're all um, nearby to where he's speaking. Okay. Um, there is a principle. Keep your finger here. I want you to go to Luke chapter 12, which can explain it way better than I can. Luke 12. And if you don't want to turn there, that's fine. And we're, all going to, we're only going to be here a second. Luke chapter 12. Mm -hmm. And right in the middle of that verse says, For from everyone who has been given much, much will be required or demanded. 
from one who's been entrusted with much. Yes. Yes. Oh, he needs sugar. Okay. Would an apple work? We've got somebody with a um, that needs sugar or something. Okay. Can somebody go in the kitchen and get that for him? Ron, do you want to eat an apple or eat? Okay. All right. Okay. Um, Jeff is also a diabetic, so he'll keep an eye on him. Thank you. Yes. Ron, can you eat that piece of sugar there? Or whatever. Is that what that is, Jeff? Okay. Sorry? There's probably honey in the kitchen. You got to go around that way to get in the kitchen. Sorry about that. Um, okay. I think that's where Jesse went to get him some uh, sugar. Okay. So the, the he is reprimanding the people because this is a principle I want you to know. If you remember nothing else, remember this. When you've been given spiritual light, when you know about God, about Christ, about the Word of God, you have a greater responsibility than the person that really has never heard much about Jesus, God, Bible. I wasn't raised in a Christian home, never read a Bible. He will judge us who know much more harshly. The point is, in these towns around that he's about to mention, he's done the most miracles. They're the ones in Galilee. And those towns saw the miracles. They heard the Sermon on the Mount. They had to be more... Um, receptive to it, or God would judge them in a much greater fashion. Thank you for doing that, Jen. Um, so he's going to pronounce doom on them now. Uh, let's see. Most of his miracles were done there, and they didn't repent. So then he starts in verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the miracles that were performed in you were performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. What's going on here? He's pronouncing doom, like we said. The word woe appears in the book of Isaiah 22 times, pronouncing woe. Chorazim, his headquarters is Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum. Um, just two miles away is Chorazin. Bethsaida is close by as well. Um, so he is pronouncing judgment on them because they had prop a bunch of evidence and they did not respond to the light they'd been given. On that basis, the more evidence that you and I have that Jesus is Lord, the more we are responsible, the more we know, the more we're responsible. So um, he mentions Tyre and Sidon here. Look at verse uh, 21 again. Woe to those cities. If the miracles were performed in Tyre and Sidon that you saw, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Okay, Tyre and Sidon were Gentile pagan cities. Uh, and they didn't get the revelation that he did, that these cities did, if you will. They were known, Tyre and Sidon, for Baal worship. Um, repenting in sackcloth and ashes, it means mourning. You're, it's like when someone dies or there's great tragedy, they would put on sackcloth, rough clothing, and ashes, they would cover their face in ashes. That's what he's talking about there. 
um, uh, it's what you do with what you know, in a sense. So what about, because you've heard this brought up, haven't you? What about people who never heard the gospel or heard so little of the gospel? Well, they're not judged as harshly as those who know the gospel. But in Romans 1, Romans 2, and Romans 3, we learn about three lights. Okay? Romans 1, let's turn there. Grab your Bible. Turn to Romans chapter 1, if you will. Romans 1 talks about light number 1. They all start with the letter C. We covered this a few years ago, but it's been a while. Uh, let's see. Romans 1, the first light that's given is the light of C for creation. Um, let's see. Look at verse 18. The wrath of God's being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Oh, we've got a nurse helping too. We're in good shape now. Uh, Okay, they suppress the truth I want you to know. Look at, listen to the evidence he gives in verse 20, Romans 1. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, clearly seen from what's been made. Light number one is creation. Then you can get a general sense that there has to be a God when you see the sun, the moon, the stars, the clouds, animals, people, trees, all of creation speaks to the fact that there's a creator. From that alone, can you get to Jesus Christ? No. But it is a light that makes, should make people search more for God. The second light in Romans 2 is the light of C for conscience. That everybody has a conscience. They know right from wrong. Um, let's see. How's, I'm going to pause here for a second. How's he doing? You think so? All right. Has someone done so? Someone already did? Okay. Okay. Say again, Jim. Let's pray for him right now. His name is Ron. Lord, we lift up Ron to you, God, and we ask that you would uh, level off his sugar numbers, God, in his body. We pray that you would give his body health and safety and strength. We pray for wisdom for those treating him here and the people from the ambulance that are going to be coming, God. We pray it would all be to your glory that you uh, would allow no sickness or any disease or injury to touch his body. We pray for total healing in his body in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Father. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Um, all right, we're going to try to go on, but I'm keeping an eye on that situation. It looks okay, but yeah, he may need the ambulance. And someone has called, so that's good. Um, okay. To whom much is given, much will be required. We have the gospel. We have Bibles. We know the truth. Therefore, much is required of us. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, there's an interesting verse that says, what do you have that you didn't receive? The answer is everything we have, we received from him one way or the other. Um, let's see. All right. 
um, going back to the text. So it's going to be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon. These are pagan areas. Does that mean they're going to heaven? No, but the Bible does teach, we said it last week, degrees of punishment in hell and degrees of reward in heaven. Good, getting the, the honey into him. Maybe he needs water. Is he dehydrated or is he not able to drink? Yes, honey and yeah, honey and locusts, exactly. Um, let's see. Verse 23. And you, Capernaum, that's his headquarters. Will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you'll go down to Hades. Because these people heard, saw the miracles and they didn't respond to the evidence that they had. And then he compares them to Sodom and he says, in Sodom, they would have repented. Pretty tough, um, but it's true. We're responsible for what we know and what we've heard. More bearable, verse 24, in Sodom than it will be for the people that hear the gospel. What's interesting, John Piper brings this out in a sermon is that, um, hard to concentrate, poor guy. Okay, we're going to get him down on the floor. That's probably a good idea. Oh. Or lay him down on all the chairs, maybe. Poor guy. Okay, somebody's calling. Um, I think we're going to suspend the Bible study early tonight because we really have to deal with this right now. Those of you on Zoom, sorry about that. Let's close with prayer and we'll mention Ron again in prayer. Lord, we lift you up and thank you for this time in your word. We pray for Ron, God, for healing in his body, that you'd stabilize him. And we pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ with thanksgiving. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week. God bless.